Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on this week's episode, we have Richard Gerver, who is a former teacher, former school leader, and now is an award-winning speaker, best-selling author, and world-renowned thinker. Um, his goal is to help all of us think outside the box. So the conversation today was one of the most enlightening and inspiring and challenging conversations I've had. Uh, some of the books that uh, Richard's written. One's called Change, Learn to Love It, uh, Learn to Lead It, Simple Thinking, How to Remove Complexity from Life and Work, Creating Tomorrow Schools Today, and Education and Manifesto for Change. As you can tell, uh, he's very passionate about pushing um, the boundaries and looking for the future of education. And so it's a refreshing podcast uh, to listen to. Uh, Richard even tells you to turn it off at one point. So I'll have to have you listen to that and pray you don't turn it off, but maybe you need to, so turn it off and come back. But it was just a great conversation. He's someone that I could have kept talking to for two hours. So uh, enjoy it wherever you are listening to this. I hope you're doing well and uh, thanks for listening. All right, so Richard, thank you so much for being here. We're really excited to have you. Um, you know, the first question that we start with every guest is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Oh. Wow, how long have we got? <laughs> it's like a self-analysis. Um, I am a former educator, a teacher, and former school principal. Um, that has always got me out of bed in the morning. That drove my life from the first time I discovered that teaching was what I really wanted to do, which wasn't one of those things, you know, I, I wasn't um, a youngster. I wasn't one of those children who classically said, oh, I want to teach. I actually uh, found teaching when I started dating uh, a young woman who was training to be a teacher. And as part of my shtick, as part of my chat up, told her teaching was the most wonderful thing in the world. Um, anyway, she held me to that. We're still together, by the way. We've, we're celebrating our 28th wedding anniversary this month. <laughs> That's um, awesome. So that, that worked out. But because of her, I found uh, teaching. I went into a classroom, fell in love with that job. So I did, I was a teacher and principal for the best part of uh, 20 years, but for the last 14 years, we might come on to this later, we might not. I moved away, not because I fell out of love with the job, but because other opportunities opened up to me to explore wider areas around innovation, human leadership, human capacity, change. Uh, and funnily enough, that same young woman, when I was procrastinating about whether I should give up my job as a school principal, who by then was a principal, a school principal herself. I remember one night, you know, those endless meetings where she, I was driving a nuts going over all the things I wanted to do and all the reasons why I couldn't do it. Right. And yeah. she said to me one night in that the way that only a North Yorkshire English woman can. And for any of your uh, listeners or viewers who have uh, ever met a North Yorkshire woman, you'll understand. And if you haven't, when you do, you will. Um, she turned around to me one night and she looked at me right in the eyes and she said, you have spent the best part of 20 years telling young people to seize opportunity and take risks. Are you going to be a hypocrite? And that was the moment I knew the procrastinating had to stop. And, you know, what, what drives me now is really what always drove me as an educator to see people realize their potential and opportunity and to help facilitate that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I'll say, depending on where you're at in the school year, right now, most of our teachers across the world are 
hopefully on a beach somewhere or relaxing wherever that is. Um, it can be tough, right? So like I, one thing I always remembered my first year of teaching of never doubting that my students, no matter how they were behaving, had potential. But sometimes, just like my own kids, they they act in a way where it's tough to continue to you know put on a smile and to really pour into them. How did you make sure that regardless of how kids acted or their choices, you were always believing their potential? I think for me, it was always understanding that their behaviors had a reason um, and that they weren't personal to me. Or maybe sometimes they were if my lessons were boring or... but. <laughs> That, that every student has a reason, you know, that they're not very, very few and a tiny percentage of human beings are genuinely nasty individuals. And most children, when you're educating them, have reasons for their behavior. And I used to see that as a professional challenge, you know, to understand the why, to have the patience, to not take it personally. And, you know, I think most teachers listening to this now, hopefully on a beach somewhere, maybe, um, <laughs> will will identify with that golden moment. You know, it's it, it's the magic, isn't it, in our job when you unlock something in a young person, whether it's a behavioral problem, whether it's a self-esteem issue, whether it's something to do with, with what has been a block in their learning. And so for me, they were always challenges to be solved. And I think you know, knowing, and, and I think this comes with the richness of experience as an educator, the more you do it, the more you see those cases unlock themselves because of that interaction, the investment in, in the emotional side of truly getting to know your students. That's where the real value comes. You know, those nights when you get in the car and you're exhausted, you've had a long day at school, you've got marking ahead of you. But those moments where you saw the smile on some student's face as you managed to turn them around in whatever capacity that was is the stuff that sustains you. Mm -hmm. I think so as I, I think about <laughs> I didn't mean to give us that example of thinking about everybody on a beach somewhere, but I'm hoping they're somewhere like that. Um, I, I often spent, um, I don't know, my first decade uh, of an educational leader thinking through spending July kind of getting my head around how I wanted to dive back into my team and my school and my district. You know, as a, as a former school leader, what, what are the things that you're thinking about this time of year to get ready to have a great uh, school year coming up? I think for me, two things. The first is actually um, a step back from that, which is to give yourself permission not to think about it. Um, <laughs> I think... I think one of the great challenges for all leaders, but particularly in education, because I think we're unique wherever we are in the world in this, that we feel guilty about ever taking a breath or a step backwards. Um, and I have worked with hundreds of school leaders around the world who feel yeah. that way, that even by having a night out or a glass of wine or you know a couple of days doing something away from the job, they just feel horrifically guilty. And, I think one of the things that's really important to appreciate as a leader is you 
that time you have to recharge to step away isn't wasted time. It's not time where you should be caring and should be busy. It's actually the time that you're putting stuff into the bank that helps you through the challenges of the next year as a leader. So the first thing actually is to not feel guilty about switching off. I think that's hugely important. And frankly, I know this won't be good for our podcast, but if you're listening to this now and Turn you off. are on a beach or somewhere similar, turn me off right now. Um, come back to us later, right? I know that I shouldn't have said that, but so that's the first thing. The second thing then is to really explore not just the stuff that went wrong the year before, because again, that's something we are predisposed to as leaders and educators. We tend to be very much predisposed to obsessing with what didn't work, what we got wrong, the mistakes that were made. How do we fix the problems? And whilst there's always an important element of that in our strategic thinking projecting forwards, we also have to spend more time celebrating what worked because actually one of the cycles you see too often in education is we jettison good stuff because it didn't make a big enough noise in our world and we just keep restructuring, replanning and redesigning everything without actually taking heed of the stuff that was magical and the stuff that worked. So as well as believing your job is always to solve the problems of the stuff that isn't, remember the other part of your job is to make sure you find celebrate and hold on to the stuff that does. So I would be making sure I was doing both of those things in equity in preparation for the new school year. Well, uh, even though we've lost all our listeners at this point, um, <laughs> I, I, I love your first point. Both my wife and I have been educators for a long time. And the hardest part for her has always been to turn it off. And it's not because she thinks she's so important. It, it's, it's just the fact that the work is, we're so passionate about the work that it's just hard to turn off and there is a lot of guilt for it. And so one, so I appreciate you challenging school leaders to take that time for themselves. And I'm going to take it another step. As we come back into a school year, if I'm a school leader has not traditionally done that. And I've always had this burden of guilt. I want to start take owning that and getting rid of that on myself. But I also want to create an environment at my school where my teachers are shedding that burden what are some strategies that you talk about um, that help schools with that? You know, that is such a significant point, Dustin. It's so vital, isn't it, as a leader that we, you know, we have to be role models in every aspect of our job. I remember when I was an assistant principal, um, car sharing with the person that was the principal. We were good friends and we were also environmentally aware before environmental awareness became a thing. Um, and we car shared because we lived quite close to each other. And he had this philosophy uh, as a principal that he had to be the first person into the building and the last person out of the building, which if we hadn't been car sharing, I would have accepted and gone, fair enough, you're, you know, you're the principal, you, you live your best life. Um, but what used to happen was this, the teachers and staff in the school would feel it was their responsibility to constantly show their principal how much they cared. And one of the ways they did that was wanting to show how many hours they were putting in to their job. 
And so we'd end up in some kind of Western standoff where we would both be sat in his office waiting for classroom lights to go out, right? Because his view was, I can't leave before my tea. And teachers were in their classrooms looking at the principal's office light, waiting for the light there to go out so they didn't think they were leaving before their principal. And as a result, some nights we didn't get home till 10 p.m., right? Now, that's an absurdity. And I suppose it's a very extreme example of what I'm talking about here. We have to set the standard, both of excellence, of course, and all of those things, but also to make sure that we realize this absurdist model that how many hours you put in proves how much you care has to go. You know, it's a very old school industrial idea that came from Taylorism and industrial thinking, this idea that the more hours you put in, the more efficient you are, the more productive you become, the more profit you make, the more successful you are. And so you, you create this spiral. To realize that actually, um, I want teachers who are fired up, who are rested, who have got loads of energy, so that when they hit the dance floor, if you like, they can, they can dance with the best of them. And yeah. so I think it's really, really important, A, to role model behaviors, but also B, to be really there for them on a human level and to give, make sure when they need it, you're giving them permission to step away. And by the way, the other thing that I think is really important here is to remember that even if you're taking a breather and however you might do that, whether you go for a run or a walk, whether you swim, whether you uh, are deeply into the arts or whatever it is, those moments actually are subliminally giving you loads anyway, right? Some of the best ideas I've ever had as a teacher and then as a principal came when I wasn't doing my job, if that makes sense. And I think it's really important again both to value that those experiences for, the, for those reasons, but also to promote them amongst your colleagues. That reading a book that's got nothing to do with education, going to a movie, watching some trashy box set, right? Going for a run, whatever it is, weirdly, those experiences will actually improve your performance and, and creative thought as an educator rather than diminish them. Yeah, it's, to your point, you got to be able to turn off, right? So that you can turn on bright when the time comes. Um, one, I don't know if you've been experiencing this, but as I've talked to educators over the summer, thinking about next year, I, I find it to be a little bit of a mixed bag. But uh, when they're thinking about coming out of COVID of the last 18 months or so, what the future holds. So I see there are some folks who are just uh, optimistic all the time. And there are other folks who are realistic and they're not trying to be pessimistic, but they're having a tough time trying to see what the vision of the future is um, because they're a little bit held in the past. What have, One, are you seeing that? And two, what's been your encouragement to folks as they kind of grapple with coming out of COVID and how do we step into the future? I think, I think the debate has never been bigger around the future of education because in some ways, although teachers have never worked so hard and upheaval has never been so gross, in a way, the whole system's been thrown in, in the air by the nature of COVID and the lived experience of it. So there are really interesting questions being explored, particularly I think about the human learning from all of this and our ability to be more uh, adaptive to change, more able to deal with change and uncertainty and how we track that narrative back to the education sphere. 
uh, you know, were we prepared not to live in a global pandemic that's a once in it, but, you know, were we prepared to live in, in, in a world that changes as fast as it does now, whether it's AI and new technologies, environmental chaos, economic chaos, socio-ethnic issues, whether it is the health crisis around a pandemic or anything else, were we prepared to not just survive but thrive in such deep times of change and uncertainty? Because I don't want to sound pessimistic here, but the one thing we know is hopefully it won't be long before we've taken control of this pandemic, but this will not be the last moment in our lifetime of profound change where we're feeling that we're having to run just to keep up. On the flip side, and the optimistic thing about that is people need to reflect on what we've learned and gained from the last 18 months, right? And one of the things that I think is really important is to understand whether it's conscious or subconscious, is just how much our resilience pool has grown in the last 18 months. You know, the one thing we know is you can't teach people resilience, really. You have to live it. And the way you live it is to overcome adversity. It's like work, going to the gym and working out, uh, working uh, on weights. You know, the more you break down the muscle fiber, the more it grows back stronger. And in some ways, resilience for me is a very similar thing. <clears throat> Until you've experienced adversity, and found a way through those challenges. It's very diff difficult to put more resilience in the bucket, right? But because of what we've all lived through, we're all now playing with more resilience, whether we know it or not, whether we feel like it or not at the moment. And that goes for our students too, by the way. Um, you know, when you think about the post Second World War generation, who showed not just unbelievable resilience through their lives, but one, were one of the most innovative and dynamic generations in human history. Um, and I, I feel very strongly that our children's generation will be that next. I mean, I, I talk about this an awful lot to people. You know, when you look at human history, human history is punctuated with periods of profound darkness, right? If you go all the way back through our uh, human history, there are moments of profound darkness. And I think we're coming to the end of another period of profound darkness, whether it's some of the polarization around the world and some of the horrific scenes we've seen in the political sphere globally, whether it's around the health crisis of the pandemic, the profound levels of inequalities that have been exposed, all of those things. Every period of darkness is followed by an explosion, a human renaissance, an explosion in innovation, in creativity, in culture and scientific discovery. And I truly believe that we stand on the cusp of that next great human renaissance, which will be driven by our children, but will be defined by the educators who are working with them now and moving forwards. And I think that's the mindset we have to go into the next few years with as educators, to understand that actually we are now in one of the most privileged positions in modern human history. Because if we get it right with the students we now have in our care, they are going to change the world and create the next Renaissance. So, I mean, that's incredibly powerful. Uh, how, how do we, yeah, the question is how, like if, you know, we're coming back and I start the process of getting my staff galvanized around like, we're at this renaissance, let's go after it. Uh, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we really tap into that with kids? Well, I think the first thing is, is to not make the mistake that I think a lot of our policymakers are using right now, which is to think of the future 
as a catch-up plan, that education is all now about a deficit model, that somehow the last 18 months have been completely in some kind of vacuum where children and teachers have learned nothing. Because perversely, as I hinted at before, the last 18 months, we will probably find that whilst young people may not have learnt as much in terms of the defined syllabus as they would have done in a normal school year, what we and they have learnt over the last 18 months about ourselves, about collaboration, about the implementation of new technologies, about um, you know, communication, all of those things are probably more profound than in any period of our planned education journey to this point in most of our lifetimes. And so the first thing I think is to take that step back and not just go, oh my goodness me, how are we now gonna pull these kids out of the black hole they're in? But how are we gonna highlight some of the learning from the last 18 months and use those as tools moving forwards? You know, so for example, the number of educators who have been terrified of new technologies, of things like Zoom or whatever over the last five, 10 years, you know, when we started to use tablets and wireless internet and even interactive boards, you know, the percentage of teachers who would be terrified of what this meant. Suddenly the last 18 months have fast tracked everybody's expertise in a new way. And now what we should be doing is going, how can we exploit that experience and use it to develop new things, new ways of working? The other thing I think that's really important to remember is that educators in the last two years, again, we're not good at this, have innovated in a way that virtually no other industry or sector has. And that shows our potential. And sometimes we undersell ourselves and don't believe it in ourselves. What education has demonstrated, you know, and I'm now one step removed from it, although my wife is still a school principal and my daughter's a teacher. So I've kind of lived vicariously over the last 18 months through that experience. I've basically been here to cook their food, mop their brow and make sure there's a gin and tonic waiting for them at the end of the day. So I've had some use. But my point is that actually... I think we need to make sure that we we help we ask we explore what is it that went well what have we learned in the last 18 months rather than going thank god that's over let's move on forget it and and change we really need to step back and start to identify the things we've learned the things we've achieved the things we've done because that'll help inform that process moving forwards but i think more than anything what it's highlighted to us is if we and our children and again i've hinted at it are to do more than survive in the future we have to put human behaviors soft skills i hate the phrase at the very heart of what we're doing because what the last 18 months of evidence more than anything else is it's how we learn to collaborate problem solve communicate these are the qualities that have got us through that period in time and it's what will define and drive us moving forwards so when you say that you probably saw me smile right at the beginning because i i was thinking i i was blessed with an opportunity to study at uh, uni college uh, back in the day and i was thinking about going to pursue a graduate degree there so the dean and i uh, spent a morning together just talking it through and i'll never forget the one thing he said to me is you know he encouraged me because he loved talking because hopefully it's enjoyable to talk to me, I guess. That's my job now. Uh, so just say yes. Uh, he, but he said, he goes, honestly, Dustin, we, the students who thrive the most here are the ones who could climb to the top of the tower 
have all of their books and just sit there and read and write. Uh, and to me, I'm like, well, where does that come from? And when you're talking about the power of soft skills, I have to assume there's a whole uh, educated elite that are not really excited about some of your ideas. What's the pushback you get commonly? And how do you, how do you inter- well, engage with them to uh, the debate there? Sure. I, I mean, I think there are two things, right? I think one of the things I understand, and by the way, I, I don't enter into this us and them stuff. I think yep. we have to find common ground. Um, I think there are too many people who are engineering conflict in and around education, which almost has created the paralysis that has has really led to a stagnation over the last 40 or 50 years of meaningful, constructive debate. Because the one thing I do believe is whether I agree with those people or not, they care as passionately as I do about the young people we educate. And I think we have to come from that position. You know, again, it's something in some ways society is learning the hard way right now around the deliberate divisiveness around larger political debate and societal conversation. We have far more in common than divides us. And I don't just think that's a snappy phrase. And I think that's particularly true in education. What I would say is that I think we have to understand there are two parallel conversations going on here. On the one level, if the future of education is purely about the acquisition of qualifications, of certificates, of letters after your name, then they're absolutely right. That high-end, high-intensity academia is absolutely the way forward. And if, if it continues to be the way that you know, we give people keys to the kingdom, then we have to make sure that those things are, are covered off properly in any education conversation. I think the issue for me is that we have spent too long just focusing on those things because that's where the, the locus of top-down pressure is. And as a result, every conversation about potential innovation stops being a conversation about innovation and evolution and becomes one about efficiency. So what you hear from very traditional viewpoints is the argument of, but what we've got to do is get more kids qualified. If we're going to have equity in our system, we've got to get more kids through graduation. We've got to get more kids through college. We've got to get more kids through the... And that's, I get the argument, but in a way, they're, they're still blinkered by believing the model's a factory model, rather than saying, actually, we need to think more expansively now. And I think that debate is having taking a larger place in life. And sometimes it's just about us highlighting that. So, for example, some of the world, world's largest graduate employers like PwC or Ernst & Young, you know, some of the real blue chip kind of high aspiration um, academic organizations, if you like, are now saying, hold on, we don't need you to be a graduate anymore. And actually, we're going to start recruiting people who are 18, 19 years of age, because what we need now are the soft skills that college doesn't teach you. We can train you in the technical skills in about six months for a lot cheaper than it costs for you to go to college. What we can't do is pull back those creative skills we need, the innovation, the collaboration, the teamworking, the problem solving. And so there's a bigger, wider debate being had that isn't just inside the education sector. And one of the things that I think I've learned, one of the privileges I've had over the last 14 or so years since I left the front line of education and, and having worked with some of these incredible organizations, 
is to gain that bigger perspective of the challenge. And actually the job now is to broaden our narrative by broadening our experience. So one of the things we need to do is we get need to get educators out more. We need to find ways through their professional development of giving them the opportunities to spend time in organizations and sectors that they met very few of them will have had the opportunity to have experience of. So they, the, so they themselves can start to build a broader, wider, more dynamic narrative. And if we can do that, hopefully we can broaden the debate. We can make it far more constructive, far more developmental, and far more one that is not wedded on how do we make the system more efficient, but how do we create a system that is more effective for our young people and the challenges they face in the future? Mm. I, at the start of your answer, you did a good job of uh, exposing even a, a hidden bias I may have had where I just said, the education elite and you, I was doing us versus them. And you know, from our conversation earlier, that that is very far from what I mean, oh, absolutely. Which, is, which is great to bring up. And so it, it, that just showed me how ingrained it is in all of us. How, how as a school leader, or a district leader, as I'm coming into next year, can I be thinking about ways to increase, expose that bias that we all have increase the uh, increase serious, um, sincere collaboration? I think it's by answer, asking a different question, not necessarily a dramatically new question, but by focusing on a bigger question. And the question that brings everybody together is what kind of people do we want our children to be when they leave the formal education system? Now, the truth is, whether, no matter what side or area or angle of the debate you come from, we're pretty much going to come up with the same stuff, right? We want them to be knowledgeable. We want them to be skilled. We want them to have hardcore knowledge. We want them to have soft skills. So if we start with that, and we, because I don't believe it's a question we ask enough, we don't go back to the foundational vision. What do we want our young people to look like when they leave the education system as human beings? And if we can start from that point and we can create a consensus, then we can start to look at how everybody's viewpoint and experience has value. You know, do I want my kids to be literate and numerate? Of course I do. Do I want those children who are academically bright and gifted to be able to exploit that academic opportunity? Absolutely. Do I want the surgeon who one day will operate on me, whether it's brain surgery, heart surgery, or a major kind of surgery, to say, oh, by the way, I was passionate about medicine, but I spent most of my time in education just doing um, collaborative tasks and lots of art and creativity as they're about to give me the gas to put me under. No, I don't. I want to know that person has got deep understanding of academic pursuit of real profound depth of knowledge. So for me, we, we have to create the consensus around the child. We have to take the step back from what do we teach and how do we teach it right the way back to that foundational vision statement. And in my experience, when you do that, that becomes a much more galvanizing conversation, which you can then pin the rest to. I think one of the challenges, so I, I'm, I'm all in, you could probably feel an amen corner from any of the folks that are listening right now. Um, I, I find a challenge, at least in the States, is when you say, let's focus as an educator, I'm coming back into the year, 
I'm ready to dive into what my kids learned and we're gonna we're gonna galvanize around that as opposed to assume they learn nothing. The challenge is, is that so much of our funding and success is determined on how our students are performing on those state assessments. And if they've not got the traditional, you know, numeracy or whatever they needed to, to be ready for this year, then I, I feel like I've got to focus all my energies on that. How do you how do you encourage educators to find that balance? Because I, what you're saying, I think resonates in the heart of almost every educator. And so how can we do both? I think, you know, this is a, a really important um, a really important issue. And I think what we have to do is think about trust more. Um, teachers are under huge pressure. School administrators and leaders are under huge pressure. And sometimes we feel the only way to get those outcomes is to create factory models where we just push and push and push. Now, I, sp I speak here from experience rather than an ideological point of view. And just to give listeners an understanding, you know, today we're not going to talk about the story in detail. But when I took over the school, I took over as principal and it was failing. It was failing because its academic results were on the floor. And frankly, if I hadn't have helped my community get those academic results up, they were going to close the they were going to close the school down. So this isn't a game. I'm, you know, an ideological game. And actually, one of the things that we evidenced through our practice was if you create a really persuasive and dynamic learning environment, the students will jump through those hoops as well, if not better than if you didn't. The problem is sometimes we don't trust ourselves or our students enough. And so we focus on these very narrow catch up programs or, or academic strategies. And this is my point really, it's not an either or experience, right? It's, it's an everything. It's the more rounded the experience, the more we develop those children as problem solvers, as collaborators, as risk takers, as innovators, the more they're actually able to engage in the syllabus and curriculum we need them to engage in. And so at my school, our academic results doubled in 18 months, not because we force fed a, a crash diet, but because actually we focused on developing the whole child and we kept coming back to the question of how do we make the knowledge we need them to have more exciting, more dynamic, more relevant and more contextual. And so for me, it isn't an either or. And one of the really profound challenges on our leaders and administrators is to give our teachers permission, space and time to realize that if we trust them and they in turn trust our students and we create dynamic persuasive learning environments, actually they'll outperform what they would do if we just focus on very narrowly getting them through the targets. I'll give you even a bigger piece of research to help galvanize that answer. Many people, many of, of your viewers and listeners will have heard of the OECD because they produce the international PISA league tables, which constantly tell us the US and the UK are illiterate, innumerate and rubbish compared to China and Finland and all the other, you know, really motivational stuff, frankly. But what's really interesting is policymakers do not read the actual research um, behind the headlines. First, by the way, when you talk to Andreas Schleicher, who's the author of those reports, he'll tell you they shouldn't be used as league tables because the context of each country is vastly different. But the more important thing is to, to read the research. The OECD 
produced the first global report into the links between education, employability and skills in 2013. And it was called the Skills Outlook. And people can find it and download it for free off the internet if they want to. Now, the reason I share this rambling response with you, Dustin, is because the first executive, executive headline finding from that report was really staggering. The first executive headline and the research carried out spoke to education jurisdictions around the world. It spoke to future employers. It was vast. The first headline was the countries where the education systems focus almost entirely on the acquisition of formal qualifications are the countries where young people will find it increasingly challenging to find work. Because in those jurisdictions, the systems are forced to focus on preparing kids to take tests and exams at the expense of real learning, development of knowledge and skills. That was back in 2013. So yet again, the thing for me is around trust and faith. You know, the most high performing education systems in the world outside of, if you like, the hot housing in, in Asia are in Finland. And what's the one secret to the Finnish success? 15 years ago, they created a culture where teachers became the most high status profession in the country, where teachers are trusted, not just in terms of their jobs, but politicians and policymakers stay out of their way. And they say, we want the profession to design the future of education and we will hold it to account, but we won't define it. And I think we have to work harder to get to that kind of, of, of level. I'm sorry for this. I hope this is all right. My final, point, <laughs> my final point around this is um, in the UK every year, and it'll be similar in the US. I'm sure there are similar surveys. Ipsos Mori, one of the big polling research organizations globally, produced something called the Veracity Index, where they talk to the general public about which are the most and least trusted professionals in your sphere. And then they publish the findings. And they talk to, I think the, the, the samples around 100 to 150,000 members of the public. Every single year since the Veracity Index began, which is now 15 years ago, teachers have come second only to not uh, nurses and doctors, right? Actually in the pandemic, uh, one other group has now crashed it in the UK and those are pharmacists, but in a way they're still medics, right? So teachers have always come second, just so that people know, politicians always rank in the bottom three alongside members of the journalistic profession. <laughs> so the people who bash us are the ones and make us feel bad are down here. And my point about that is this also, we need to galvanize our trust and self-confidence in ourselves because we as a profession are second only to medics in terms of high trust. And my guess is the same thing will be the case in the US. And we have to be better at using that trust to define what we know to be right for our young people. Mm, that, I mean, that'll get people fired up to go fight what they need in their communities. Um, the last question that we ask every guest is something that kind of builds off of what you just did there, which is try to encourage people to galvanize. When you think about um, the advice that you've been giving lately or things that you've been learning and listening to lately, What's the best piece of advice that you have for a leader who's working on themselves right now and working to create change? I think it's, I think it goes back to something we talked about earlier and it's to 
give up on the relentless pursuit of perfection because there's no such thing. And I remember a teacher once saying to me, I was one of those kids at school who would throw a tantrum if I lost a mark on a test, or I was one of those kids, you know, who didn't ace it. Um, funnily enough, I did, I did the tantruming a lot because I was never that smart. So I, I spent more time tantruming than I did ever acing anything. But I remember one of my teachers taking me aside one day and saying something that's become a mantra to me. And it's this. Remember that you learn nothing new by getting something right. Remember you only ever learn something new from realizing you don't know something or you can't do something. And it's at that point the magic happens. And I would say the same thing to leaders. Your pursuit of perfection will always fail. And accept that, come to terms with it. And actually remember that the moments where you make a mistake, where you screw up, if you address that right are the moments where you become a better leader and therefore by definition, better for your community. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing I think is to remember that the most important quality of a leader is to listen. Um, I think all too often we feel our job is to solve everybody's problems, to find the answers, to create the strategies, and we burn ourselves out. And actually, our most important job is to find the talent in others and to empower them. It's really what great teachers do. And it's why often great teachers should make great leaders, because in a way, the job is, is the same. So listen more, beat yourself up less and learn to celebrate the mistakes you make because those are the moments you're going to become a better leader. That's great. Well, uh, your energy, uh, I feel like, I mean, this, every time we've talked, this is our second time talking, but you, you just exude this energy and anybody who's seen you uh, speak, this is fully who you are. Do you ever have any downtime? How do you, how do you uh, recharge yourself so that you can shine right now or dance, as you said, uh, on the dance floor? I do, and that's the privilege of my job now. You know, I don't have to work at the intensity that people working in our schools and colleges do anymore. But what I have learned to be better at is to just use that time and enjoy it. So going for a walk or a, a, or a run, you know, those things are important. Watching trashy television. Um, <laughs> one of the things I often say to people, and I think I've learned to do more than anything, is if you're on, imagine you're on a train, right? And on that train, you're, you don't lift your head up from your laptop or your work or your documentation. Just imagine all the stuff that's whizzing past outside the window that could make a profound difference to your life. And I think that's the thing I do now more than anything. I've, I made a conscious effort to make it part of my formal life years ago, and now it's a habit. And that is I spend as much time looking out the window as I can without feeling guilt. And I find that time helps me process what I learn, what I see, what I understand, and hopefully communicate it. And I think more importantly than that, Dustin, the energy doesn't come almost from sleeping too well. It comes from just bloody well loving what it is I do. And, and feeling blessed every day to know I do it, you know? And, and again, sorry for the rambling answer. The last 18 months have taught me that as I think it's taught many people that more than anything. Because over the last 18 months, I've lost the opportunity to travel, to be in rooms with people, to share that energy and that passion and to learn from them. 
Um, and I think the energy now is the realization of how profoundly lucky I am to lead that life. And so that's where the energy comes from. I love what I do. Um, and I make sure that I cherish the planned and unplanned, unplanned, unplanned moments equally. Yeah. One, one last thing as you were talking, made me think of, uh, in my preparation of listening to podcasts and your listeners, you know, reading your books, listening to, uh, your Ted talks, um, you talk about the power of uh, saying yes or showing up. I'm trying to figure out, I may be taking it one way or the other, but it was really convicting to me because basically what I kind of gleaned, and so I want you to uh, correct anything I misunderstood, but was, you know, if someone invites me somewhere and I can make it happen, show up. I, you know, a lot of times, especially after COVID, you're like, well, I probably shouldn't. I'm with kids. Like, especially as a dad of like three young kids, I got all the excuses in the world to not share with me kind of that lesson that you learned and wow. uh, something that could be great for others. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the power of connection is, is so incredibly important. And I think all too often we almost um, pre-decide who's going to be, pardon me, of use and who isn't. It kind of goes back to the pressure we put on ourselves about being efficient. So often we cut off the opportunities to meet people, to network with people, um, because we think, oh, I can't see the relevance. I can't see the value. Um, you know, my great friend and mentor who sadly left us last year, Sir Ken Robinson, who taught me so much about who I was and, and how to live my life. People said to me after he died about his legacy and how are you going to carry his legacy forward? And, uh, and there are a million and one things I could have done. But I think for me, I remember one of the first times um, Ken invited me to a meeting. Ken had this incredible power because of who he was and who he knew to bring people from disparate backgrounds together and allow the, the magic to happen, right? He was like an alchemist. He would bring people together and just sit back and watch the flow. And he'd bring people together from diverse and different backgrounds, situations, ge geographies, right? And, and people who should never normally be in a room together. So an advertising executive with somebody who works for an airline, with a teacher, with somebody who designs um, shop fronts with a dancer and, and put them in a room and just see what happened, right? And magic happened. And I remember Ken's face at those sorts of dinners where he would just sit back and smile because he know, knew he'd, he'd, create, he'd been the catalyst for the alchemy. And I think... Look, we don't all have a Ken and sadly, nor do I anymore. But that lesson about never pre-censuring people, making sure you're open to meeting anybody, wherever they are, whatever they do, because you will always learn something from that experience. And I think that to me is the most powerful lesson in life. We're in education, right? Our job is to be champions of learning. And you don't just learn from being with the same people in the same environment in the same setting every day. So that's why I try never to say no and say yes to hooking up or meeting with anybody I can at any time, because you never know what you're gonna learn and from when and from who and where. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly refreshing. Like I say, it definitely is something I, I wrote down I've been trying to work on since then. So. I appreciate it and hope people uh, run with that. Uh, thank you for your time today. 
Uh, I know it's busy. I'm sure your dog is ready to uh, get some more treats. Uh, it's not been as bad as you probably think it is, but I figured I would just tease you as we get off. But this was awesome. Uh, even better than my wildest imagination, which definitely went wild knowing I, I get to talk to you. So thank you for being here with us today. And maybe at some point, uh, if you're not too busy, we can have you back on. Dustin, honestly, it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so, so much. And I would love to come back on. So until we meet again, thank you. I appreciate it. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.